This is a reading from Galatians chapter 3, verses 17, to Galatians chapter 4, verse 7. My point is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance comes from the law, it no longer comes from the promise. But God granted it to Abraham through the promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring would come to whom the promise had been made. Is the law then opposed to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could make alive, then righteousness would indeed come through the law. But the scripture has imprisoned all things under the power of sin, so that what was promised through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian, for in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. My point is this. Heirs, as long as they are minors, are no better than slaves, though they are the owners of all the property, but they remain under guardians and trustees until the date set by the father. So with us, while we were minors, we were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father! So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. So it's a big long text, uh, and as usual, it's full of um, perplexities and compl- uh, complexities. You may remember last time, I bet you don't, but um, <clears throat> last time we saw how in the first half of chapter 3, Paul mounts kind of three arguments against the Gentile believers in Galatia choosing to submit to circumcision and life of obedience to the Torah. So he pointed, first of all, to the Galatians' own experience of transformation uh, through the work of the Spirit, which had nothing to do with law-keeping. Then he pointed to the example of Abraham being declared righteous and receiving the promise of many offspring uh, solely on the basis of his faith. Again, it had nothing to do with law-keeping. And then he warned against what I call the dark side of the law, 
the fact that, the, that there was a danger of, of um, relying on the law as the key to your relationship with God or falling under the ability of the law to curse, uh, c- curse humanity with judgment. So in the remainder of chapter 3 and on into the beginning of chapter 4, Paul offers a kind of chronological before and after uh, comparison between life under the Torah and life in Christ. Or to use Paul's own language in verse 23, a contrast uh, between the period before faith came and the period now that faith has come. So I think the best way to unpack Paul's argument in this uh, half chapter or so is to focus on the three historical phases in the divine drama that he is referring to in this text. The epoch before faith came, which is the era of life under the Mosaic Torah, which, as Paul points out at the beginning, began many centuries after Abraham, 430 years after the time of Abraham, then the law was uh, given to Moses. Then the second period, the period of the coming of Christ himself, when in the fullness of time God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. And then the third period of now that faith has come, so the implications of this for those who have been baptised into Christ and now belong to Christ. So I guess for us the most interesting uh, part is the third sort of so what stage. What does this mean for those of us who live um, in the period of faith? But I think it's important to try and grasp what Paul says about, as best we can, about the previous reality as well, because Relapsing into a kind of law-based ethic has been a constant temptation for the church right from the beginning and it remains a constant temptation for all of us as individual believers. And maybe in our, our gathering, if we have one, to talk about this stuff next time, we could talk about what, what does that mean to, to live with a kind of law-based ethic because that's the thing that Paul is arguing against and yet so often we end up uh, relapsing into that way of thinking. So let's begin then with the the, the previous epoch of life under the law. Uh, It should be crystal clear, I hope there's one thing by now that is crystal clear to you, is that Paul's attitude to the law underwent a drastic change after he encountered Christ. A change that was so dramatic that it really is mind-boggling to try and uh, understand. So previously, as a loyal Pharisee, Paul would have seen the Torah as the sort of fulcrum of all human history, as the key to everything God required of his people and of people in general, as the only real source of confidence that one can have before God, and as a basis for dividing up the world into us and them, into us who belong to the Mosaic community, us Jews, and them, everybody else, the Gentiles, the nations. And also for establishing kind of hierarchies of value within the covenant community, depending on levels of piety that people displayed. So for Paul, the law framed everything in terms of his religious uh, worldview. After the Damascus Road event, everything changed, dramatically changed. He came to consider that all the advantages that the law conferred on him were just so much rubbish or so much garbage 
or so much crap. The word he's using here that's translated as rubbish was a word that was also used for excrement or for sewage. And so there's even one <laughs> quite famous scholar who said we should translate this as crap. So it's a pretty dramatic change. And the best place to sort of get a feel for this is from Philippians 3. Paul says, If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith of Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. So you get a feeling there for this incredible change of outlook. The main reason, it seems, for this re-evaluation of the Torah was its relative failure compared to his experience of Christ and the Spirit, its relative failure to deliver on what it promised it promised life and it promised righteousness. It promised a way of life freed from the grip and condemnation of sin and a life marked by a kind of fulfillment as a sort of faithful relational partners that God always intended humanity to be, which is, I think, what this word righteousness means. Being in the right kind of relationship to God the way that God intended. So that's what the law promised but after experiencing Christ and his spirit, Paul realized, retrospectively, that his previous reliance on the law to provide these blessings had been a fool's errand. So he says in our text, he says, For if a law had been given that could make alive, then righteousness would indeed come from the law. But, very strong contrasting conjunction, but... The scripture has imprisoned all things, including the law-keeping community, all things, under the power of sin. So I think Paul's problem with the law is not so much the content of the law itself, what it, what it teaches or what it requires, because elsewhere Paul refers to the law as holy, just and good, and he remained happy for Jewish believers to continue living their life uh, in observance of the law. It wasn't the content of the law, it was the proficiency of the law. It was its lack of power to achieve what it promised and demanded, and even worse than that, its vulnerability to being manipulated by the greater power of sin uh, through deception, so that the law ended up actually colluding with sin and reinforcing the overwhelming control of sin. So yes, the law is powerful enough to deliver this universal curse on humanity, that's its dark side, but Paul found it is powerless to make alive again and to bring true righteousness. So Paul doesn't reject the law holus bolus as such, it appears, but he felt forced, he felt forced by his own experience to rethink its true purpose in God's dealings with 
uh, with Israel and with humanity. Its true purpose, given its sort of darker side, its underbelly of actually collaborating with the enemy, that's the problem you saw uh, as part of the, of the uh, difficulty of, of the law. And so he asks uh, in our text, is the law opposed to the promises of God? Certainly not. Make it right out. Some, I think I mentioned there's one uh, scholar said you translate that as hell no. You know, this is a, completely, um, a complete reaction against that possibility. Is the law opposed to the promises of God? Oh, not at all. In fact, Paul says it serves to advance God's promise of righteousness and universal blessing, but not in the way that he previously thought. So he says, why then law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring would come to whom the promise had been made. Yes, the law was given because of transgressions, but it was not given to root out the source of transgression or to bring new life or to impart true righteousness, as he had thought. Instead, it served two other functions with respect to transgression. On the one hand, it served to sort of clarify how deeply entrenched and how extensive the problem of sin really is in human experience, even within the law-observant community. The law shows just how deeply rooted this problem really is, how serious this problem really is. The law turns regular human wrongdoing into transparent transgressions against God's stated commandments. So there can be no ambiguity about its seriousness. And yet, transgression continues to happen. And even in some respects, it gets worse. And this, is, uh, made, this point is made very vividly in the famous passage in Romans 7, which I'm sure you'll recognise. Uh, where he makes this point in, a, again, a really almost offensive way, I'd have thought, to, to his contemporary hearers. He said, what then should we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had been not for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, that's this vulnerability, sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lays dead, lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the very commandment that promised life proved death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Did what is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin working death in me through what is good. That's the law. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So his point is that the law serves to clarify the, the severity of the problem. And he makes the same point much more briefly in our text. He says the law was given to imprison all things under the power of sin, all things under the power of sin, so that it is clear that the solution must come from somewhere else because it can't come from the law. So part of the law's function, Paul decides, 
was to clarify the problem that needed to be addressed in a most inescapable way. The second function is that it was given to offer some kind of limited protection from the ravages of sin within the covenant community by holding God's people in a kind of protected custody. So when I was working on this, the first thing that popped into mind was MIQ, <laughs> or, or lockdown, as an example of this. I mean, to protect us from the ravages of the virus, our freedom was restricted, showing how serious the virus is. It's so serious that we uh, agree to have a, our, our um, freedom curtailed, and yet, in itself, the lockdown did nothing to deal with the virus. I mean, we had to wait for the vaccines to come along and deal with the actual virus. So Paul uses a different metaphor, of course, but as, as a more contemporary one, uh, he, he uses the metaphor of the law being like a guardian or a disciplinarian. So he says, uh, Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian. The word there is paedagogos, it's the Greek word. Um, I'll come back to that in a moment. The law was our paedagogos, our disciplinarian, until Christ came. So we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer subject to a paedagogos, to a disciplinarian. So this term, paedagogos, literally means a child governor. Or I guess we might say a child minder. Um, it was a recognised role in many well-to-do Greco-Roman households. Uh, the Pythagogos was somebody, usually a slave, who supervised and controlled the children, and when taking them to and from their lessons at school, protected them from predators. So they had this, this sort of protective disciplinary function together. He wasn't, and there's been a lot written on this, he wasn't a teacher, he wasn't a tutor himself. He was a guardian and a disciplinarian. He, he sort of kept the ship in order uh, on behalf of the father. Uh, and the role came to an end when the children reached maturity, which was at 12 years of age. So his role was for a limited duration uh, within a household. And that is the metaphor Paul uses for the law in the experience of Israel. It was not a teacher leading them to Christ, as we have often been taught. And that partly comes from the way that the King James Version uses the word teacher to translate this word paedagogos. It's not that it was a teacher leading them to Christ. Rather, Paul says it was a custodial officer. It was a prison officer. They're both protected and imprisoned. They both stemmed the tide of sin, yet also compounded the problem. That held them at MIQ, but for a limited period. We were, verse 23, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. This expression, now that faith, uh, before faith, or now that faith has come, these expressions, before faith and now that faith is revealed, uh, are not referring to the human ability to exercise faith as a virtue, like suddenly people suddenly realised that they could use, uh, they could use the faith as a, as a, as a way of um, living their life. And it's not suggesting that God is now, for the first time, requiring faith of his people. After all, I mean, Paul's already used Abraham as a model of faith, so it's obviously 
faith was operative back then, and has spoken of Abraham being counted righteous through faith. So he's not talking about just this ability to, to show faith or trust. Instead, these phrases signal that Paul is talking about a kind of history-changing impact. A history-changing impact of Christ's own definitive display of faith or faithfulness in God, crystallized in his obedience to death on a cross to liberate others. And our ability to participate in his achievement by placing a corresponding faith in him, a faith that is kindled in our hearts and energized in our lives by his faith. So faith becomes the operative principle of this new reality, which means when you sort of sort of untangle it a bit further, um, I don't know what you think about this, but it means that when we are justified by faith, I mean justified, put right on the basis of faith, it is both Christ's faith or faithfulness and our echoing faith in his faith, if you like. Uh, meaning that this new age of faith has superseded the age of the law, an age where the operating principle was law, is now being replaced by this uh, age in which the operating principle is the principle of the faith that Jesus displayed and that we uh, participate in and echo through our own faith in him. Um, I've come to think that it's actually crucially important to keep this dual reference to Christ's faith and to our faith uh, together and see them as two sides of the same coin. Uh, and this is not usually done. It's, I mean, it's... Um, Anyway, I won't bother explaining that. But if we don't keep these two things together and understand that when Paul's talking about this radical change that faith has produced, is primarily, I think, talking about what Jesus has displayed in his faithfulness if we do, and, and, and our ability to echo that in our lives. If we don't do that, we slip into thinking that God has kind of unilaterally and arbitrarily changed the rules of the game that once he required works of the law, and then he said, no, I've got something better to think of now, I now require work, the work of faith. And often when people explain this issue, that's virtually what they say, that it was once works of the law, and then God said, I'm sick of that, let's do something different, we'll make it faith, as, as the way in which I now um, require people to, to respond. If that were the case, if it was simply that God had said, no law, now faith, then simply copying Abraham's faith would have been enough to deal with the problem of sin that he's already uh, talked about, the problem of human servitude to this old age controlled by the principles of sin and death. But it's not our faith that is redemptive. It's not our faith that makes the difference. It is our faith in Christ's faithfulness unto death that is redemptive. It is Christ who has ruptured the lordship of sin and delivered humanity from its subjection to the elemental spirits of the world, which Paul talks about uh, in, in the next chapter. So he says, beginning of chapter 4, For when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
So you're no longer a slave but a child, and if a child, then an heir through God. See, the image here is almost like God sending his son into a prison camp, a prison camp of the law, in order to spring his imprisoned people free from their servitude to this guardian um, reality, and then adopting all others outside the camp as well, who are also languishing under the servitude to the same alien powers into the same family of freedom. Both those redeemed from life under the law, which is the Jewish community, and those redeemed from life outside the law, which is everybody else, receive the same inheritance promised to Abraham, an inheritance of righteousness empowered by the Spirit of Christ, who imparts to all equally this powerful sense of belonging to God as a child does to its parents. Which brings us into this third stage of the chronology, which is this new age of faith uh, that Paul is talking about. So this intense sense of personal connection with God, this crying, Abba, Father, energised by the Spirit, is one of the key markers or benefits of this new age of faith and freedom uh, that supplants the old age of the law. But there are other benefits as well. So 25 and 26, But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian, for in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are all Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So in that text, Paul uses these two powerful experiential metaphors to capture this transformed life that comes with this new age of faith. He uses the metaphor of baptism. For as many of you who were baptized into Christ, immersed in water, immersed in the Spirit, so that you're almost absorbed into Christ, a bit like one of those sort of things you melt in and put in water when you're, what do you call those things? You're looking for a bit of extra vitamin C or something? Um, yeah, brocco. That's what I'm trying to think about. This idea of being baptised into Christ, almost, almost drawn into his, his existence. So baptism in water symbolises this transformation ritually or externally. Baptism in the Spirit, which is the other side of the same, same event probably, accomplishes this transformation inwardly and spiritually, as many of you are baptised into Christ. And the other metaphor he uses is putting on new clothes. For as many of you who are baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves in Christ. Clothing in the ancient world, as well as the modern one, was a way of visibly marking one's identity, a way of displaying one's ethnicity, one's gender, one's status, one's wealth, one's religious role, and one's class. So it becomes a common ethical kind of metaphor. To clothe yourself in Christ means to adopt his character, his values, his love, his example, as one's defining identity, and in a way that trumps or transforms every other source of identity and belonging. A, a, a way that supersedes or, or I mean, 
Trump's not the right move <laughs> to use these days. No. But I did find it a bit dry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I think of uh, another <laughs> sort of the. But it's not only that you are now defined uniquely and 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 um, definitively by Christ, but that identity now transforms any other source of identity that you have and leads this remarkable affirmation in verse 28 Galatians 3.28 there is no longer Jew or Greek there is no longer slave or free there is no longer male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus now I think that it is almost impossible to overstate the importance and the revolutionary nature of this affirmation, which flies in the face of everything Paul previously believed about the nature of reality. The division between Jews, God's chosen people, and Gentiles was the most fundamental ordering principle of the Torah. Now, in Christ, and that means, amongst other things, in the Christian community, that distinction no longer applies. The division between males and females is the most basic principle of patriarchal society and family life and indeed of the created order itself. I mean, the phrase is taken directly from Genesis 1.27. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, in Christ... In the Christian community, that ordering principle no longer applies. The distinction between free citizens and slaves was a universally recognised foundation for the socio-economic and political life of antiquity and right up until the 18th century. Now, in Christ, in the Christian community, that difference no longer implies. In short... The three classical areas of human conflict between races, or nations if you like, classes and genders are transformed and transcended in Christ, in God's new society. So the, the sheer radicalism of Paul's statement here doesn't sound very radical to us, but when you try to put it into the context of Paul's own life and day, the radicalism, I think, can be seen by contrasting it with the kind of conventional wisdom of the day. So Jewish morning prayers, probably in the first century, began with three blessings. Blessed be he that did not make me a Gentile. Blessed be he that did not make me a slave. Blessed be he that did not make me a woman. Those three things had in common. They couldn't study the Torah. Or the Greek maxim of the day, the Hellenistic man has three reasons to be grateful. He is born a man and not an animal. He is born a man and not a woman. He is born a Greek and not a barbarian. These categorical binaries, Paul says, no longer apply in the Christian community because, quote, you are all one person in Christ Jesus because you belong to Christ. Now, I think this formula is not suggesting that ethnic, sexual and social identity or distinctiveness 
is somehow obliterated and or erased in the Christian community. Jews remain Jews by culture. Men and women remain male and female by chromosomes. I, I think that still applies. I'm not so sure uh, today. Slaves remain slaves by law. So it's not those identities in itself that are somehow uh, obliterated. So what, what does it mean? It seems to me it can only mean that discrimination or disadvantages based on those distinctions are to be transcended and not perpetuated within the Christian community. Ethnicity, gender and class are no longer determinative of one's social and spiritual standing or of one's opportunities to exercise any form of leadership or service in the community. Of course, Paul's primary concern in Galatians is to prevent the entrenching of the distinction between Jew and Gentile uh, by uh, making the Torah central to the community's um, life. So that's the, that's the primary distinction that he's trying to challenge here. So why add neither male or female and slave or free when those weren't burning issues in this congregation? They were burning issues in Corinth, uh, but they weren't, as far as we can tell, burning issues in Galatia. So why add those kinds of, why those extra distinctions um, are cited here? Maybe because, just a guess, Paul knew that if the Galatians adopted a law-based ethic as they were being encouraged to, required to, by Paul's opponents, if they did that, then he knew that all the commandments that restricted women, that entrenched patriarchy, and that permitted slavery would also kick in and would prevent the most vulnerable members of the community from experiencing that foretaste of freedom that the Spirit brings within the church, if not within wider society. Submission to the law, Paul would say, I'm sure, will enslave everyone. But it would be especially harmful for those on the social margins of the community who already had limited rights and freedoms. Just one last comment on this. <clears throat> the commentators are pretty unanimous in uh, suspecting that Paul is here quoting from a baptismal lit lit liturgy that was used in the early church for inducting new converts. He says, for as many as you have baptised into Christ. Uh, and the similar kind of formula is found in two or three other places in his epistles as well. So they suspect that Paul is actually quoting from a, a baptismal liturgy that was used. Uh, some even speculate, at least one I came across speculates, that the cry, Abba, Father, in 4.6, was what the candidate cried when they came out of the water, which I think is kind of cool. <laughs> um, but it's just a guess. Uh, I can imagine coming out of the water and crying to God, Abba, Father. Whether that was part of the liturgy, we don't know. But... Assuming that Paul is citing this liturgical fragment, it probably means that in Galatians 3 to 8, 
28, he's reminding the Galatians of what they already knew from their own baptism, that they must now clothe themselves in Christ as an ethical obligation that comes with baptism, an ethical obligation that will bring a new social reality into existence, at least within the community of faith. If, if that's the case, then it's, it's a kind of a pity, uh, you can almost say a tragedy, that this baptismal formula seems to have fallen by the wayside in subsequent history, and maybe we should try to resurrect it. I mean, imagine how much failure and suffering the church and the world would have been spared if we had continued to tell believers at baptism that belonging to Christ comes with strings attached. You are now being baptised into Christ. You must now clothe yourselves with his identity and with his ways. In Christ's body, you must transcend all discrimination based on race, class and gender, for there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female, in God's new family, for you are all one person in Jesus Christ. I mean, just imagine if we did that rather than so strongly emphasising free grace that nothing else matters. I think it would have made a major difference. So the Galatian Gentiles were being pressured to submit to the Torah as the basic ordering principle of their Christian life. And they were being severely tempted to, to do so. Paul fiercely opposes this uh, move, arguing in our text that it would be tantamount to a freed slave choosing to return to enslavement or an adult choosing to return to the powerlessness of childhood. And it would also, if we are right about this verse 28, it would also reimpose the distinctions of the old order that fuel conflict and injustice and oppression. But for Paul, a new peacemaking community has been born, rooted in the identity of Jesus. So he says at the end of the epistle, for neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything, but a new creation is everything. As for those who want to follow this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God.